Hello, greetings and welcome. I'm John Gibbons and this is Alchemy. It's great to have your company and I'm really looking forward to this week's show. We've been trying to get this guy on air for quite some time and it's going to be a huge pleasure to speak to him. Before he's introduced, just to let you know, we are free and on demand for those who may not listen regularly. We're on iTunes and alchemyradio.net and you can follow us and join the Alchemy community on Facebook and Twitter. So say hello. We'd love to hear from you. We exist, of course, thanks to your kind donations. So thank you to everybody who does so via the website. We're completely non-profit and intend to stay that way. So then, on to the show. Alchemy, Alchemy. This week's guest is Lennon Honor. Lennon is a writer, musician, video producer, talk show host and counsellor. His website, LennonHonor.com, has provided a wealth of information and inspiration in regards to manhood, fatherhood, marriage, children, family and personal growth. Lennon is the writer of two published books. His first, Writings for the Fathers of the World of Tomorrow, was written to inspire current and future parents and to encourage healthy relationships between fathers and sons. The second book, Deep in the Garden of Consciousness, delves deep into metaphysics, spirituality and consciousness. Lennon has produced eight major documentaries to date. Film topics range from spirituality, religion, media mind control, subliminal manipulation, transhumanism, the occult, politics, the entertainment industry, amongst other salient topics. Currently, Lennon is working on several projects, including his video series, The Truth About Subliminal Messages, How to Protect Your Subconscious Mind. Lennon, you're very welcome to Alchemy. How are things? Oh, I'm doing wonderful, John. Good to be with you. And thank you for uh, allowing me to come on to your show. I really do appreciate the opportunity. Well, I really appreciate your time as well. I've been looking to speak to you for quite some time and I'm very pleased that I have the opportunity to do so because you've a different perspective on what's going on in the world to quite a lot of people. You are very much based in family values and quite a lot of traditional values. A lot of people neglect the daily nitty-gritty of everyday life when they're talking about what's going on in the world around us, particularly that which exists outside of the mainstream. And I find it very refreshing to hear somebody such as you speak on a level that I think so many people can relate to, even if they're new to a lot of the information. And that's something that has attracted me to your work in the past and I think will appeal to a lot of people as we have our conversation today. So... I'm going to ask you the question that I ask absolutely everybody who comes on this show, and that's how did you get from where you were, Lennon, to where you are now? You can be as, <laughs> as in-depth or as brief as you like. <laughs> well, you know, uh, life, uh, it began for me when I was conceived. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, there's been a, a steady uh, process. It's, it's just everyday progress and uh, personal refinement and then searching out information and knowledge. I think that there comes a point in our life at some point where we really start to ask questions about the nature of reality. And then we start to question a lot of our own beliefs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I remember a time where I used to follow uh, the mainstream media and I used to everything that was said. I believed it to be true. Everything that was proposed, I accepted it without any evidence or proof. And then there came a point in my life where I really started to question not only um, mainstream media, um, but then also just what I believed to be true and what I valued in my own life. 
Um, and, you know, there's always like a, an aha moment. And when it comes to um, my own moment of really thinking about the world in a different type of way, I think September 11, 2001 was kind of like a turning point for me. Mm. Um, initially, I didn't ask any critical questions and I accepted um, the official version of September 11, 2001 as being true, um, although I had a lot of questions. But then there was a part of me that recognized that something wasn't quite right, but it wasn't until my first son was born uh, he's 11 years old now where I really started to question reality. And this set me on course to studying people like Jordan Maxwell, David Icke, um, uh, uh, what's this, um, okay, what's this brother's name? Uh, Freeman Fly. Oh, yeah. Uh, and getting, just getting into the alternate information um, was another individual, because this is going back over a decade ago. Um, uh, I can't think of his name right now, but but uh, he was very influential uh, in my progressions too. But but really, it was it was more about me asking critical questions about the nature of reality, and then I started to research more. I researched, I researched, I studied. I started getting into alternative news. I went down that uh, paradigm for for many years, and then I started producing my own documentaries on similar topics that I was researching. Mm. Uh, and then later on, I started to transition into looking more at the internal situation that's taking place within the human condition, as opposed to the external forces. Uh, you know, the Illuminati, um, the global bankers, uh, so forth and so on. I, as, as Instead of externalizing um, power and seeking to try to uh, get information and research on those particular topics, I got to a, a point of mastery on those topics, did documentaries on those topics, but then, and then I started to look within and ask critical questions about myself, about the nature of my own humanity. And what I found was that throughout this process, what I was really seeking for was self-empowerment. And then when I started to, you know, really step into my role as a man and as a husband, as a father, that empowerment really played a very positive role in terms of what I'm doing now with my family, what I'm doing now with my wife. We've been together for 14 years. So this been the, this has been the progressions and it continues, you know, 10 years from now, I hope to be in a much more empowered place, but it all starts somewhere and we all have to start somewhere. And it starts with asking those critical questions and being uh, willing and courageous enough to question what we believe to be true. You mentioned the media early on in your description there. Let's talk about that for a second because there's a lot of subliminal media programming that goes on. Like like you, I was somebody who lapped up as much of mainstream media as I possibly could. I thought it was very important to know what was going on in the world and my only outlet for that was the news on TV or radio or whatever it was. And I kind of went through a, a de-learning process or an awakening process then with regard to that. So... What can you tell us about subliminal media programming and what goes on within the mainstream? Because I think that's quite a good frame of reference for us as we delve further into the topics then at hand. Yes, and that's one of my areas of expertise, dealing with subliminal messages and media manipulation. Um, I have documentary media manipulation um, or a documentary series, video series, uh, Transcending Media Manipulation. I also had a radio show for a couple of years, Transcending Media Manipulation. Uh, media, uh, mainstream media is about mind control. Uh, nothing more, nothing less. And I think that's that's one of the topics, mind control, that really kind of got me uh, moving in a particular direction when I really began to research. Matter of fact, the person I was thinking about earlier just came to mind, uh, Michael Tessarion. I remember he had a video series out where he was talking about the subversive use of symbolism in corporate logos. Yeah. That had a very profound impact on me because he was talking about subliminal messages, uh, subliminal symbolism, but then also uh, subliminal messages. And over the last decade, that has been a main focus uh, of my research to a great degree, especially when we talk about um, media manipulation. The mainstream news ultimately is designed to um, incorporate people's minds into a belief system and as many people as possible to where people begin to think the same way. And ultimately, the thinking is not so much critical thinking, 
but thinking to such a degree to where a person externalizes their power onto the mainstream news and accepts whatever the mainstream news says as being absolute truth without any conclusive evidence or proof to back up any given claim, um, without any research, without any study, without any, without question. And ultimately, that's pretty much what the mainstream news functions as. And one of the, um, there's a couple of tools that mainstream media uses in terms of manipulation, and one happens to be subliminal messages. For those who are all, just a quick um, overview, subliminal simply means below the normal threshold of auditory or visual perception within mm. the human being. So there's like this baseline um, level of where we can hear things conscious, where we can hear things and then consciously register them. But then there's also below that baseline, below that threshold, which is called liminal, that's called the sub, like submarine, that mean, means below the, the marine layer. Um, subconscious, that means below the conscious mind. So subliminal means below that line of demarcation between your conscious awareness and your subconscious awareness. A lot of the programming that we receive is basically subconscious. It doesn't register audio uh, on, on terms of um, uh, audio, uh, how we hear it in, in many cases. Um, also in terms of um, perception, uh, liminal being where we perceive things consciously, sometimes the information is being presented to us um, subliminally below the line of demarcation wherein we can accept it on a conscious level it's below that threshold so now we're dealing within the subconscious a lot of the programming deals with sub the subconscious mind interestingly enough the subconscious mind functions differently than the conscious mind the conscious mind is the critical part of our of our uh, psychology if you was human beings it asks it asks the question who what where why when how it asks yeah. the question where's the evidence of proof it asks the question is that true it's always seeking to solve problems and to define undefined elements that's pretty much how this the, the your conscious is the critical aspect the critical thinking and, and a lot of us that is what we need i mean we really need to, to be able to critically think so when we do get information on the mainstream news we ask critical questions that's taking a conscious approach that's when people say i'm conscious okay mm. on, on but on a d deeper level the subconscious mind doesn't ask those questions. The main function of the subconscious mind is to protect the conscious mind from any level of subconscious or, or any level of conscious trauma. So anytime you can't define an undefined element, anytime you cannot solve a problem, uh, anytime uh, you're unable to get the answer to who, what, where, why, when, how, or, or et cetera, you're, psychologically speaking, your, your conscious mind begins to experience psychological trauma. So what happens is the subconscious mind, as a psychological defense mechanism, it kicks in and takes whatever the issue is that you're unable to resolve and then submerges it within the subconscious mind. So whatever that issue is can be embedded into the subconscious mind. And sometimes what's being given to you is nothing more than programming that is being embedded into your subconscious mind. So you can socially engineer groups of people by giving them information that's not registering or that they can't process consciously. And it's nothing more than programming now that's being accepted and, and submerged within the subconscious mind. And so uh, to a great degree, just to surmise, the um, Mainstream media is designed to tap into the subconscious mind of the global population and ultimately issue programming. That programming is not in the best interest for the most part, is not in the best interest of the global population. And that's what we call mind control because ultimately what happens is all of the subconscious programming that we receive, whether that's through subliminal messages, um, uh, subliminal association, whether that's through uh, media saturation, I'll talk about all these different concepts inside of my book also in, in, in past radio shows, whatever technique is being used, neuro-linguistic programming, 
programming it's all designed to program the subconscious mind and what happens is all of that program or programming ultimately enacts a level of behavior modification wherein people begin to do things they begin to behave in particular ways that is not necessarily conscious and so what better way to mind control people than to tap into the subconscious mind and then modify behavior and then have people behave how you would want them to behave without their conscious awareness of it and that's pretty much how in a nutshell it's like a beautiful system if it wasn't used for such nefarious purposes because it has the double whammy effect of those who are being affected, which is pretty much all of us at some point, not knowing that we're being affected and then denying that we are if it's pointed out because how could somebody else know us better than we know ourselves and know the processes <laughs> of our own mind better than we know them ourselves. And I know that any time I may have in my in my slightly earlier days when I pointed this type of thing out to people you'd be met with a brick wall um, of abuse in some cases now I was not the right messenger for that message quite a lot of the time I'm (laughs) far too blunt in my approach but it's not an easy thing to hear it's a a paradigm shattering notion and most of us don't like that kind of blunt force or you know that brute force when we meet it and when it does challenge our own belief system so it's not an easy thing and not an easy process certainly in my experience anyway to come out of that and I'm getting that impression also from you Lennon but to further kind of examine the media and the mainstream media as it is this works on kids as well and I've just noticed over the last kind of five or six years how it seems to have been ramped up the the subconscious and subliminal messages seem to be directed more and more towards kids. It's like, get them early. We've got the adults. Get them early now. Would you agree with that or would you dispute it? Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Matter of fact, um, this is one of the aspects of mind control. Uh, Children, and I have five children. The oldest is 11. When when we, and all of us, when we come into the world, we're operating based upon the subconscious mind. We don't have a level of conscious awareness. That's why a lot of us, we have difficulty remembering childhood. Like if you said, oh, do you remember when you were one year old? No, your brain, you're still development. No, I don't. Or do you remember when you were a month old? No, uh, two months old. Um, that's because things are not being processed consciously, so you don't have a conscious recollection of particular experiences. Mm. Part of the reason why is because as children, we operate ba- mainly based upon our subconscious mind. That's why children pick up languages very quickly, okay? And all of that, you know, in order to, to, to uh, analyze on some level at least, um, it's really not analyzing, in, 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 in other words, in order to, to um, incorporate a new language so quickly as a child, um, a child has to be of all of that, that language has to be programmed into the subconscious mind. Because when we speak, when, when we talk about language, when we're speaking, we're not necessarily thinking, okay, I'm going to be speaking, speaking in English. <laughs> okay. You're not thinking that. Yeah. It's part of subconscious programming to speak that way, um, to speak, speak, use that language. And that's all programmed into us. But that's because as children, we operate mainly based upon our subconscious mind. Now, what happens is as we grow older, we begin to come into a level of conscious awareness. The, the idea is, um, to transform the baby who is operating based upon the subconscious mind, and this is my wife and our, our goal, transform that baby into a conscious being. In other words, now it's coming out of the subconscious, op- operating based upon, simply based upon the subconscious mind. Now it comes into a level of conscious awareness. Now I can ask critical questions like who, what, where, why, when, how, where's the evidence and proof? Yeah. Is that true? Is that false? So you want to raise the child up so that it becomes a conscious being. And see, and this should happen. Parents should do this for their children. The problem is, is that for a lot of us, that process of coming uh, out of operating based upon our subconscious mind mainly to coming into a level of conscious awareness, it's been stagnated. And one of the reasons why is because a lot of the programming that we receive when we are children is is being uh, submerged with the subconscious mind without any um, conscious defense. In other words, um, just to make this clearer, 
the reason why the programming, the mind control, the subliminal messages impact children so well is because children operate based upon their subconscious mind. Subliminal implies sub below the normal auditory or visual or uh, or mental perception of the, your conscious awareness of the human being. So subliminal, subconscious below your conscious mind. All subliminal messages are designed to impact the subconscious mind. Subliminals don't impact you consciously. Mm. So as a child, if you're operating mainly based upon your subconscious mind, well then yes, the, the subliminal messages, the mind control programming is going to be is more impactful on you as a child. And that's precisely why a lot of the programming in the media, and it's gotten even worse these days, is directed towards children. It's subliminal programming for children who operate based upon their subconscious mind. So it, it, it fits perfectly. Now, as parents, our goal should be to rate for, in the first place, limit the amount of negative programming that our children receive, because they're going to get it, but you have to make sure you try to limit as much as possible, yeah. but then raise them up to where they become conscious beings, so that at a certain point when they do receive the subliminal messages of the mind control programming, they'll ask critical questions consciously, like who, what, where, why, when, how? Is this really relevant to me? Is this programming? And in and, and this way, they will begin to protect their subconscious mind, consciously protect their subconscious mind from all the degrees of mind control, media manipulation, and subliminal messages. The language you're using is very interesting there because we're talking about sub and raise and you're talking about raising kids and raising consciousness and it is kind of the same thing. I've heard uh, people such as Mark Passio speak about this, how while a lot of parents might assist their kids in growing older, they don't necessarily raise them because the idea, as you've just said, is to raise the consciousness of those kids so that they're not operating on a sub level anymore. It's to get above that and raise the consciousness. The word raise is most certainly used for a reason when it comes to kids being developed and our parents yes. parents assisting with the development of the kids. And it's something that's forgotten, I think, quite a lot by most people. The job of raising a kid is not necessarily just to make sure they get off to school and that they have enough food on the table. There's a lot more to it. And you've hit the nail on the head there. And I would like, if you would, for you to expand on it a little bit more with regard then to raising kids and raising their consciousness and how difficult that can be in the world that we're in at the moment. Yeah, and it can be a challenge, um, but it's also necessary. Mark Passy is one of a good friend of mine, and I love his work. I appreciate his work to an extreme degree. Yeah, I think he's phenomenal. Well, yeah, I've known him for many years, um, and he's right. And um, th th this idea of, sometimes we use that term so loosely, like, you know, raising children. <laughs> you know, people, people just say, yeah, I'm raising these children. But what does that really mean? Mm. You know, and this is this is this is like the deeper level when we talk about um, what my wife and I we call conscious parenting. You know, to be a conscious parent, it means that you're you're trying to mold this child or this infant into a conscious being who is a critical thinker, who is able to solve problems, um, who is sentient of self. You know, you're also seeking to raise them into balanced emotional beings mm. to where not they're not quick to anger or quick to rage like little children tend to be quick to emotional outbursts it's one thing to be emotional but it's, it's another thing to have negative emotions master you well this is part of the raising the children who throw tantrums oftentimes because parents aren't there to raise them properly that tantrum stuff that's all subconscious people aren't thinking consciously when they're throwing those tantrums pa a parent's job is to mold that child and raise that child out of that subconscious programming which is basically animalistic programming and let's just be clear about it um, raise them out of that and, and bring them into a, a level of intellectualism into a level of critical thinking into a level to wherein they begin to ask critical questions about the nature of reality and they question everything so this can be a challenge especially for parents these days because there is so much programming 
not only in television, movies, it, the music these days, I mean, it's not even just these days, but for a long time, the music is a, an extreme form of, of programming, negative programming that impacts children's subconscious mind. Mm. Um, television shows, movies, the, the news, of course, major uh, programming there. I can go on and on and on. The public education system in and of itself, programming. So as parents, my wife and I, our strategy is to limit the amount of negative programming as much as possible. And we, we take this to, to, um, to a different level. We talk about raising our children. For instance, um, we homeschool our children. Um, we home birth our children. Um, we don't externalize our power. On, we don't have other people watching our children. We don't have our children hanging around other children who we know are not behaving properly. So we have to be very careful to, and then we don't have a television in the home. Uh, our three youngest children, they don't even know what a television is. Um, we haven't had a television in the home for over a decade now. So what we're and so, but this doesn't mean that our children aren't experiencing certain types of media. This means that as parents, what we do is we screen things in advance. This can be a challenge. I mean, it's a lot of work that goes in. in my wife and I, we screen things in advance. Movies, if we want to let them watch the DVDs that we get from the library, we screen them in advance. In some cases, the books that we allow them to read, we screen them in advance. This is a proactive uh, approach to parenting. But the idea is this. We've taken a conscious approach, conscious parenting, to protecting our children's subconscious minds. Hmm. See, and when you do that from the beginning and then you raise them up, again, there's that word, you're raising them up into intellectual beings so that they reach beyond the paradigm of living as animals. And there's nothing wrong with that. People want to live like animals, that's fine too. But the idea is that human beings, in terms of our intellectual capacity, we can reach beyond our animalistic nature and come into a, a level of spiritual understanding, coming into a level of conscious awareness by protecting our children's subconscious mind. What we're doing is we're preparing them for that transition. And then the other thing that we're making sure that we're doing is we're making sure that we are engaging them intellectually every single day. Let me just, as a, as a side note, just as an example, what I mean by the animalistic nature, our, my, my wife and I, we do not hit or spank or slap or beat our children. Mm. Now, I grew up in a household where we got all of that. We got extreme levels of abuse in many cases. I grew up in a very abusive household, but I didn't want to pass that on to a, as a legacy to my children. The point that I'm making is that when we hit, when we slap, when we spank, when we beat our children, we're appealing to the animalistic nature in them, but also the animalistic nature in us. Yeah. So what this does is, is it's programming the children and see all of that is subconscious programming. When you hit and you spank and you, you stimulate these negative emotions in the child, fear, and then you're in a state of rage. Okay, this is all negative emotions, subconscious programming. You're stim and what happens is over time, um, the physical abuse that the child experienced, it, the child begins to cope with that physically to where in a slap that you did, that you used when the child was two doesn't hurt the same way when the child is three or when the child is four. So oftentimes what happens is parents, they ramp it up a little bit more. They slap a little harder. They slap or they spank a little harder. They beat the child a little bit harder. But all that's doing is training, to, tra training the child to react emotionally, negative emotions, fear, flight or fight. Now we're getting into subconscious programs. It's just subconscious mind, flight or fight, that's subconscious mind. So now the child is being trained through physical abuse, physical violence and physical pain to operate within their subconscious mind exclusively, which is the antithesis of consciousness. 
And so oftentimes what people are doing when they're spanking, when they're abusing their children, when they're harming their children, inflicting physical pain, they're doing, they're treating their children like animals and then their children begin to operate like animals. They're not thinking intellectually. The child is not thinking intellectually. They're not being trained to think intellectually. They're simply reacting emotionally based upon subconscious, pro, uh, 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 subconscious programming, flight or fight. The problem with this is that it ultimately degrades the child's progressions towards proper intellectual process. It degrades the child's progressions into becoming conscious beings because we're basically training them to be subconscious beings operating like lowly animals. So this is another example. It's not just screening the negative content out there, the media that's out there, um, the books, the television shows, the, the music. It's not just that. That's part of it. It's also about how we are treating our children, how we are loving them. Okay, because that all plays a role in terms of their intellectual uh, development and in terms of their progressions from being subconscious beings coming to a level and being raised up into conscious beings. Now, I can hear some parents out there and they're kind of screaming at the radios and they're saying, well, Lennon, it's very well for you to say that, but I can't deal with it. I have to go to work and I have to get childminders and I can't control whether they put them in front of the television. Plus, what harm is a, are a few cartoons going to do every day? And as long as they're reading, sure, isn't it good that they're reading something as opposed to reading nothing? What would you say to that kind of a mindset or an attitude? Well, the thing is that no matter what the situation is, it does not absolve the parent of their responsibility. So in other words, for instance, if we had our children in the public education system, we would make sure that we, when they got home, that we would engage them intellectually and we would ask them questions about their day. Mm. So, so we'll ask, how, did your, how was your day today? Did you have any problems at school? Did anyone say anything inappropriate to you? Did anyone uh, touch you inappropriately? Um, was there anything that was said that was inappropriate or that, you, that made you feel uncomfortable? So in other words, you're still interacting with them intellectually. See, what I'm saying is that oftentimes what parents do is, is they absolve themselves of full responsibility of their children. And so then, and, and even if, they're, if the child is being taken care of, of, of let's say by a child care provider, maybe a, a relative, it may be the school system, maybe the child's in a public education system. And when the child comes home, the parent doesn't interact with the child. The parent doesn't sit down and talk with the child. The, the parent doesn't go and get out a book to read to the child. The, the parent doesn't ask the child about their day. The, the parent goes and turns on the telly. The, the parent goes and watches the mainstream news. The, the parent goes onto YouTube and watches, watches video, that, or the parent goes and does whatever. So what I'm saying is that whatever the situation is for you as a parent, the idea is that no matter what, you are making up for any differences that need to be made up for. Yeah. And I can, t I can tell you, for even from our vantage point as parents, there's still more that we can do for our children. Now, we're in a unique situation. We've made a lot of sacrifices in order for us to homeschool our children, in order for us to be active in their lives every single day, 24, basically 24 hours a day. There's a lot that we have had to sacrifice as parents. Now, this some people may say this is an extreme example. It, you can look at it that way, but it's all relative. But ultimately, that does not absolve a parent of doing their very best. So what I'm saying is that any given parent, if your situation is such that you can't have, maybe you're a single parent, so you can't have you know your children at home all because you have to work and you can't homeschool, maybe you, you can't protect them for certain programming all the time, I understand that. But when your child is in your care, that's your time to be a conscious parent. And that's what I would say. Yeah, so in a sense, it's about taking control of as much as you possibly can. Control may be the wrong word, but em empowering yourself so that you are giving the very best for your kids as much as is humanely possible within your situation. 
That's right. And that's all you can do. Because my wife, I'm, and I'm going to tell you as a man, I wish that I was able to earn more income. because, And, I, and I've and i earned more than I have in the past, but I, I, I wish that I could do better. And I'm seeking to do better. So this is another area that I'm working on that is, is relevant to all of this. Because to, what I'm saying is that even financially, that's an issue that we have to consider. Because the notion of us homeschooling our children, there's a financial burden that goes along with that. The, yeah. Just the level of, of interaction that we have with our children every single day, 24 hours a day, there is is a financial cost to that, okay, as opposed to having them in the public education system. So what I'm saying is that it, even though we do what we do, I do recognize that I can still do better. And one of the areas that I know they have to do better in is earning more income. Some people may say that that's unrelated to protecting your children's consciousness or subconscious mind. No, everything is, is related. Anything that has to do with being a responsible parent that also means materially being responsible for your children, financially being responsible for your children. It all plays a role. So what I'm saying, and the reason I'm using that as an example, is because I want parents to understand, parents out there to understand, that by no means am I suggesting that what my wife and I is doing or are doing right now is what everyone else should be doing. Because it really, you have to be in a particular situation to do it. But what I am saying is that whatever your situation is, you have to maximize on the time that you do have with your children and use that time to your best ability to influence them in the most positive way possible. And see, when we do that, okay, we're embracing our levels of responsibility to whatever degree that we that's humanly possible, but we're also being an active participant in our children's lives to such a degree that we will set them on course. In other words, we're making up for, for the difference for in terms of whatever negative program they may be receiving, we're still making up for the difference as being by being conscious parents who are actively raising our children up. That makes a lot of sense, um, certainly to me. And then the issue of homeschooling, because there seems to be a concerted effort by governments around the world to, in a lot of cases, abolish homeschooling or to at least kind of make it so difficult for parents to actually be able to achieve it by putting red tape and bureaucracy in the way that they'll kind of break and just send their kids, even if they wanted to homeschool, into the public education system or the public schooling system, as I prefer to call it. I don't necessarily think it's it's a form of education. So your experience then, Lennon, with homeschooling, and I suppose the question that a lot of parents might ask would be, do your kids feel they're missing out on something with regard to friends or peer groups or any uh, that kind of thing? I mean, how easy is it for the kids then to integrate with other kids, particularly as they get older, if they're not surrounded by them in the school situation or that kind of institutionalized environment? Yes, and it's interesting. Use, use the term institutionalized environment. It is an institutionalized environment. Mm. Um, the thing is that there's a misconception, uh, and I'll, I'll just preface this by saying that my, our children uh, socially um, they are very well adapted. Yeah. Um, they are remarkable children. When we go out, um, there's been times where, where I've taken my children um, to the post office with me to go mail out, you know, books or what have you. And um, people have commented, you know, your children are so very well behaved, you know, and they don't they don't know that we homeschool and, and that, we, you know, we really are, are loving, caring, conscious parents. We raise our children in a very loving household. No levels of abuse. Our children have not had any levels of abuse whatsoever. Um, and it makes a huge difference. Plus, they see their, their mother and father in a loving relationship every single day, all day. That makes that socialization, in my opinion. They're being set on course so that they can have positive relationships when they when they come of age, which is not what people children get in the public education system. So I just want to preface that by saying that our children are well adapted socially. And when it comes to interacting with other children, we take them to the park or when, you know, relatives come over, we had recently had a birthday party and, uh, 
cousins came over. They they incorporate. They have no problem whatsoever. They they're very loving children, um, and socially they have no issues whatsoever. In point of fact, socially they're very much advanced. Um, in 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 a sense, when they come of age um, and come into adulthood, they're going to have a very much easier time socializing with adults when they come into adulthood because they've been spending time dealing with their mother and father every single day. It's a different dynamic. And then yeah. in terms of dealing with children, they're dealing with each other at 24 hours a day. Um, five children all together, two girls and three boys. Now, having that preface being said, the thing about the public education system is this is a misconception that people have, and that is that it's designed to social for social interactions. You know, in other words, children are there to have social interactions. But if you all really think about it critically, that's what I mean, asking critical questions about things consciously. How much time do how much time does a child un, normally when they go to the into the public education system each day? How much time is given to them so that they can have social interactions? You see, that's the thing. Very little. It's actually discouraged most of the time because you have to sit there with your mouth shut listening to whatever programming is being spewed from on high. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my point. That, that's my personal experience anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, that was my personal experience. And anyone who's listening to this, if you went to the public, I mean, just ask the critical question. How much time did you have interacting? And then and then we can even ask, take it a step further. OK, mm. how much of the time wherein you were socializing? Was it a positive social I- in- experience? <laughs> a lot of times the social experience, it was teasing. Yeah. You know, it was a different levels of abuse. You know, people calling people names and segregate, you know, segregation, you know, uh, girls or stay with girls and boys stay with girls. They're okay. Well, this is a socialization that we're getting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so what I'm saying is that the dynamics within the public education system is no different than within the job force. And when you start your job, how much time do you have to socialize with with other adults? And then also, you always have someone on high dictating to you, just like the teacher is always on high dictating to you what you, you should be doing, what you should, and in the case when we were children, what you should be learning, what truth is, what you know, all these different dynamics. So what I'm saying is that we have to think critically about the public education system. It's not to provide children with positive social interactions, because that's not what most children are doing. And I'm going to tell you all something. These days, the types of things that are taking place in the public education system is far more egregious than what it was when I was coming up. And that's saying something, because when I was coming up, the types of things that were taking place, quote unquote, socially, the alcohol, the sexual, um, um, you know, sex, uh, um, when I say sex, all sorts and kinds of sex, okay, that was taking place, Um, the drug abuse, um, just the, the language and how, and in particular, just as an example, how as boys, we were being socialized into seeing uh, young girls as sex objects, and then how we spoke about them, the terminology and the language that we use when we spoke about young girls was very disrespectful and demeaning and demoralizing. That's all part of the socialization, what little socialization that children get in the public education system. So what I'm saying is to for a parent who would ask, well, you know, well, how do we, how do we, you know, provide our children with levels of socialization that is that um, you know that the public education system would normally be providing. Well, what I would say is that we have to think critically about that type of socialization that is present in the public education system in the first place, and ask whether or not it is in, it is functional, whether or not it is in the best interest of the intellectual, emotional, and psychological development of our children. And the answer to that is no, it's not in the best interest. Now, again, if you are a parent and you have your children in the public education system, okay, we understand that. Just make sure that when they come home, you are having intellectual conversations with them about what 
What was your day like? What did you experience today? What was said to you? What did you say to other people? Do you have any problems? Did the teacher say anything to you and, and stated it as being the truth and it, it didn't seem like it was true, okay? Yeah. Ask these critical questions and make up for the difference. Within the family then, moving on slightly from the kids, the roles of men and women, it does seem to me there's a lot of role reversal going on. Now, be it for better or for worse, I would like to get your take and your opinion on it, Lennon. To me, it does seem that it's almost like the lines have been blurred between man and woman and there's a huge drive for equality. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a really good thing, uh, but I will give my perspective on it just to give you some kind of frame of reference for where I'm coming from here with this. Um, I, personally speaking, I think there's a massive difference between parity and equality because men and women are not equal. We're not the same. We're not exactly the same. Now, we can be on par with each other with regard to how we treat each other and how we expect to be treated. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we are completely equal. And I think the word equality has been slightly bastardized in that it has come to mean parity and equality all rolled into one. And I think they are different words for a very distinct reason. So what's your take on equality versus parity and the roles of men and women in the family then? Well, you're absolutely right. There, there. That word equality. People assume that everyone has to be the same um, in order for, for for us to live in a just society, <laughs> and, it, and yeah. it simply doesn't work that way. So let me just give an example. And I know a lot of people. It, it makes people uncomfortable. But that's just programming. There, we're, there's this uncomfortability factor um, that if you say something like you know men and women aren't equal, then it makes people very uncomfortable. But the truth of the matter is that men and men aren't even equal. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, no two people are the same. That's right. And women and women aren't equal. And children and adults are not equal. So it goes on. I mean, it goes on and on and on infinitum. So one of the challenges that we find in society, a lot of this is like social engineering, is, again, the blurring of the lines in terms of the function of a man and the function of a woman, especially within the context of male-female relationships. And then if you want to take a step further within the context of a family institution where children are being brought into the world by these uh, this couple, you know, this man and this woman. Yeah. And what I will say, and I can just tell you from personal experience, um, my wife and I, we have a balanced relationship. There's also balance in our home. And because there's balance, because see, a lot of people, they assume that if we're not equal, then someone is going to be more powerful and have more power than the other person. Yeah, but sure. this is all coming from this notion that men and women are separate in that way and that we're always vying, uh, vying for power and control within the relationship. I call this the male versus female war infant program. Mm -hmm. And so many of us, again, the public education system teaches this, men versus women, boys versus girls. Boys, you know, you stay away from boys, you don't play with boys. Boys are icky, girls are icky, men are from Venus or whatever this foolishness is. Women, now we are different, but it's, this does not mean that we are in opposition to each other. So, uh, so for whatever reason, when people say things like, you know, we have to all be equal, they say that because they're coming from the vantage point of this notion that we are at war with each other in, in the first place and that in order for this war to end, we all have to be equal. But it's not about equality. It's actually about complement, uh, the notion of being in a complementary relationship. So let me explain this, because this is something that people are missing out of out on when we talk about men and women. It's about how we complement each other. It's about how when we come together, do we, do we bring balance into the relationship? And here's the thing, if 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 you have a man and a woman and they are absolutely the same, how are they going to be able to bring balance within the relationship? 
If you have a man and a woman and they're absolutely the same, how is it that they're going to be able to see each other in a particular way to where they will have a level of interest in each other to such a degree to where ultimately children are going to be conceived and born into the world? Yeah. There has to be differences and the differences between men and women is what compels us to unite as men and women because we're seeking to find balance in our life experience and women can bring us level of balance and men can bring a level of balance, but you can't bring that level of balance if you coming from this notion that we're at war with each other and we have to be equal. See, so in other words, what I'm saying is in a nutshell is that the, 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 the issue of, and let me just use a term, the issue of gender equality. This is a false notion that is quite destructive because ultimately the woman has no role and the man has no, no role. And I'm gonna tell you something, when it comes to raising a family, you do have to have particular roles. The woman's experience within the family institution is going to be very much different than the man's experience. And therefore, there's going to be things that the man is going to have to do to make up for those differences and things that the woman is going to have to do to make up for them. Let me give an example. <laughs> here's, a, here's an example. When a child is conceived, and I have a book on this topic, when a, when a child is conceived, the woman's body begins to transform itself so as to produce this child. Everything that's taking place within the woman's body is transforming itself hormonally, is transforming itself. Her body itself is transmogrifying itself to support this life so that ultimately this life can be born into the world. And there are particular challenges that a woman will experience emotionally, psychologically, physically during those nine months of labor. And as a constant, and, and see, here's the thing, are men, do men have that experience? No, we're not equal in those regards. And we will never know what it's like for a woman to conceive a child and to have this child maturating in her womb for nine months. Matter of fact, we don't even have a womb. So how can we say that we're equal in those regards? We are simply not. We have to be clear about this. Now, what I'm saying is that when the woman is having this particular experience that the man is not having, there are things that the man brings and should bring to the table that will help the woman in terms of the psychological changes that she She's experienced the emotional changes that she's experienced and the physical challenges that she's experiencing during the the nine months of pregnancy so what i'm saying is these are two separate uh, experiences and and the woman her orientation to this experience is going to be different than the man's orientation but what happens is is that if the man is fully committed if the man is is uh, is understands his value and his worth in terms of supporting his wife during the nine, nine months of pregnancy he's going to be able to bring that into the equation and by bringing that into the equation, he's bringing something that only a man can bring to that equation. Yeah. So he's not equal to her, but he does complement her. She's not equal to him, but she does complement him. So this is what I'm saying. What has happened to a great degree, and it has promoted the destruction of the family unit, is the blurring of the lines in terms of gender roles, especially within the context of male-female relationships. And one of the ways that this line has been blurred has been this notion that somehow we all have to be equal. No, we're not. Not only are not only is it the, uh, true that men are not equal to women, but it's also true that women are not equal to women, and that uh, men are not equal to men, and adults are not equal to children. And we have to embrace this diversity, because within the midst of this diversity, we can come into a level of balance and the absence of this level of diversity we come into dysfunctionality and it's the truth yeah it reminds me a little bit of uh, take your favorite band well not your specific favorite band but let's take a band say i don't know the beatles if there were four ringo stars in the beatles would they have been as big and successful <laughs> as they were today i 
kind of think that they wouldn't because they tended to complement each other. They had different strengths and different weaknesses. That's right. And I think that seems to be that that's the impression I'm getting as you're talking about men and female. It's not men versus women. It's men with women and women with yes. men and becoming more than the sum of their parts instead of this one size fits all approach that actually doesn't really fit anybody at all. Yes, and see, most people we've been raised that way to think in the first place it's men versus women or, or women versus men. I call this the male versus female war imprint program. It's a program that's imprinted within our subconscious mind. It's very difficult for, pe- for people to get beyond that and, and let alone establish positive male-female relationships because their whole orientation is this notion that we're at war. And whenever you have a war, there has to be a hierarchy. And whenever you have a hierarchy, you feel as if the way that you 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 um, stave off this hierarchy is to make everyone equal, even though everyone is not equal. And here's the other thing I have to say, that people assume that inequality, and it's really not, that's not even an appropriate word. It just means differences and diversity somehow means sexism. It's not, that's not, that's not it. Yeah. Diversity between men and women does not mean Sexism. Now, there are men who can be sexist. Okay, yes. And there are women who can also be sexist. Yes. But that's coming from the vantage point of a male-female war infant program. In other words, part of what we have to do is to, to, to reach beyond this program in the first place, which is embedded within people's subconscious mind, that somehow we are at war with each other in the first place. I'm not at war with my wife. I love my wife. I support my wife. I do whatever I can to support her. We've had five children. I've, I've had to, 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 you know, as a, as bringing my complimentary part, okay, into the equation, my unique skill set, my strengths and my weakest weaknesses, I bring to the equation to help my wife to, to do whatever I can in order to support her during those nine months of pregnancy, five times now over these last, uh, 12, 14 years. What I'm saying is that I recognize my worth and my value as a man singularly. And I understand that as a man singularly, I have something that is unique to offer. And it's not the same as what my wife has to offer. And she has something unique to offer that's not the same as what. And I appreciate everything that she brings to the table. And when we come to the table that way, in the absence of having this male female work imprint programming, we are able to complement each other. It's not about sexism, it's not about division, it's not about this sense of war and power and control. No. It's about us coming into a positive relationship and perfectly complementing each other as distinctive men and distinctive women. And we can all have that. I think so. And I also find it very interesting that you uh, you use the term imprint there as well. And again, the, the appeal to the subconscious, because that's most certainly something that is perpetuated by the media. And as far as I can see, anyway, this, this us versus them mentality everywhere you look, whether it's movies, music, videos, whatever it might be, uh, newspapers, it's us versus them. It's women stand up for your sisters. It's men uh, trading upon women. It's the language used, be it in hip hop or heavy metal or any kind of music that you care to listen to now. It's just always this us versus them mentality and it, again it, it comes back to divide and conquer yes absolutely and, and if you can divide and conquer men and women well look you, you set yourself up for power and control because now you're, it's going to influence future generations because the children who are conceived by those men and women they're going to get the same programming and then those children if they don't break the programming they're going to pass that same legacy if you will on to the next generation and my wife and I we're being very careful not to pass that legacy down to our children all the levels of abuse that I experienced that my wife experienced we're not passing that down as a legacy and I would encourage people I know this is a touchy topic and again it's an emotionally charged topic but what I'm saying is think intelligently about it. I would encourage anyone and everyone that if you're running this particular programming and you believe that men and women are at war with each other, essentially, that's our nature. 
I would suggest that you begin to transcend that programming because that sets us on course for negative male-female relationships and then ultimately dysfunctional family institutions and then the cycle perpetuates itself. What better way to control the massive amounts of people to have them at war with each other? And if you can have the family institution at war, well then now you have children who are being raised in war zones. And then consequently, what type of life experience are they going to have that's going to be empowering? So it, it goes on and on and on to how we can approach this on an intellectual level. Just understand that ultimately we have to see that we are complementary. And I have a role. My wife, she has a role too. And I have a particular gender role. She has a particular gender role. And it fits, it complements, we complement each other. And that's that's how it should be. If you want to raise a, a healthy family institution, there ought, there must be balance. Yeah, of course. There has to be balance in everything, in, in any kind of nature. And there's what's more natural than the relationship then between a man and a woman? That should be. That should be. It should be the most natural thing. It should not be difficult. And I've seen so many people who have struggled in male-female relationships. There's a reason why. A lot of it's just subconscious programming. I mean, you look in, you look in nature, and no other species have difficulty in, in male-female relationships. <laughs> you, you don't see yeah. them having struggles and arguing and fussing and fighting, and I'm at war with you, and you're at war. You don't see that. I mean, this is a subconscious issue that's that's um, unique to the human species. When we've gotten so much programming, it's it's we're always at war, and it's totally unnecessary, and it's it's unhealthy. It's truly unhealthy. And I'm, I'm gonna tell y'all, uh, my wife and I, we've been together for 14 years now, and we've had a very blessed relationship. And one of the reasons why is that we work with each other through our own personal issues, and we've always had a collective goal. It was always about raising children in the most loving and positive way that, that we possibly could. Now, can we do better? Yes, and we, we're seeking to do better, but we've always had it in our minds to do our best when it comes to our relationship and to do our best when it comes to raising children. And you can't do your best in the, where in, in the first place you believe that somehow we are at war and that the only way for men and women to come out of this quote unquote war is for men and women to be equal to each other. It's not about equality, it's about complementary, uh, having a complementary relationship. And I think that once we begin to conceptualize that, the, the complementary nature of existence itself, then we can at least begin to transcend that programming that has gotten so many of us off course when it comes to how we relate to each other as men and, uh, uh, men and women. And you mentioned goals there as well, Lennon. Something sprung to mind or stuck out for me as you were talking about it in the context of what we have been speaking about. And that's with regard to the programming men versus women. Would it be correct in, st- in, in surmising then that that begins with kids now? So I'm just specifically thinking of, as I call it, a Disney princess programming. These unachievable, unattainable, unrealistic goals being set for, in this case, women or little girls, but that far back, that young, so that maybe women grow up with this perfect ideal of what a man should be, which in no way correlates with what men really are. And then I'm thinking as well of the, how would I call it? I suppose the stupid man that we see all the time in the media as well, how the man is just this kind of almost Neanderthal, uh, doesn't understand what's going on. The woman has to keep the show on the road. Um, It just, all of this is conflicting all the time. And I can understand how if all these ideas are swirling around in the subconscious, how nothing is ever going to be right in the conscious mind with regard to a relationship between a man and a woman from either perspective. Yeah, very well said. Um, and what you're mentioning is that the extremities, oftentimes media gives us the extreme. So it will give you an extreme representation of uh, a woman who needs to be saved by a man. 
uh, in the case of Disney Princess. She has to look a certain way, carry herself a particular way. Uh, and somehow, for some reason, she's in a situation where uh, she's desperate. You know, she needs someone to come and save her. Mm. She doesn't necessarily have to improve upon her condition. She just has to wait for a man to come, the, her prince in shining armor to come and save her. Well, there's a lot of women who have received that program when they were children, little girls, and they be, they believe, and that's the standard, it's an extreme, it's really an extreme, um, and they believe that that, is the, that becomes the archetype by which they set. And so they're looking for that man who's going to save them. Interestingly enough, they may even put, psychologically speaking, subconsciously speaking, they may even begin to put themselves into situations that are not in their best interest because they're fulfilling this dream okay it's programming that has become a dream yeah um, in order for a man to come save them they have to put themselves in a situation where they need to be saved okay so this is this is in part again this is subconscious programming that's issued to young girls it's extreme in the case of disney princess there's other areas to this too the materialism and, and night uh, night and shining armor and all this kind of thing but then also for, for males a lot of the programming is again the dumbed down male the male who does not have proper intellectual process understand that as a man one of your it's very important for you um to have proper intellectual process because you have to be able to solve problems um what i mean by that when we especially when we talk about gender roles, a lot of people are uncomfortable about this, but this is the truth. And I'm telling you from having five children, when my wife becomes pregnant, there are unique challenges that come about. There are unique problems that come about that she should not have to worry about. Because in, in point of fact, she's in the process of of maturating within her womb a baby. And the notion of her having to have unnecessarily, uh, unnecessary problems uh, to deal with, from my vantage point as a man, no, my job is to solve those problems so that she doesn't even have to worry about those problems. In point of fact, I want to solve problems before they even happen so that she can ultimately experience the best pregnancy she can experience. And then by virtue of her experiencing the best pregnancy that she can experience, my baby is experiencing the best pregnancy that the baby, if that makes sense, the best, yeah, the best sure. maturation process that the baby can experience. So as men, we have to develop the capacity to solve problems. And there are unique problems that you will experience. And again, I'm putting this in the greater context. The greater context is within the male-female relationship. The greater context is as a husband. The greater context is as a father. I will tell you, young men, the, the amount of problems that you have to solve now, they pale in comparison to the amount of problems that come up when you actually start to have children. Trust me. Okay, I have five <laughs> children. I'm telling you the truth. So it's important for us to develop proper intellectual process coming to a level of conscious awareness because it is your conscious awareness proper intellectual process that solves problems now the, a lot of the programming that we we get and we receive is designed to ultimately retard the, the intellectual process of young boys in other words um, we're stuck in a state of arrested development when it comes to our intellectual faculty so that's why you always see the programming of the of the men in these you know you can just look at the car, even cartoons television shows the the men how they they are portrayed her, their characteristics oftentimes it's buffoonery oftentimes they're yeah. jokesters oftentimes they're they're uh, tricksters they don't solve problems they cause problems well how are they behaving they're behaving like boys boys create problems men solve problems so part of what i'm saying is that yes the programming plays a major role in terms of disrupting the progressions of girls coming into womanhood and boys coming into manhood to such a degree that it becomes difficult for the young girl who received the Disney princess programming or whatever programming that she received, that she's a perpetual victim, that somehow she has to wait for a man to come, to, to come save her and she doesn't have to do any personal work, she doesn't have to refine herself or anything, just look pretty, that's it, he's gonna come and save you. Or the notion that men, and what it means to be a man is to be a buffoon, that particular 
programming has a very destructive impact on our psychological development, our emotional development, um, or even in some cases, our physiological development as girls coming into womanhood, as boys coming into manhood. So what I'm saying is this is more incentive for parents out there to make sure that you protect your children from that type of programming. We do not allow our children to have the Disney princess programming, mm. the Barbie programming. We don't allow our sons to watch anything. There's no way, because I consider myself to be an, an individual who, um, who promotes proper intellectual process, not just the notion of thinking quickly about things, but also living a, a just and ethically uh, a sound life. I will not harm people. I will not hurt people. I will not take advantage of people. These are principles that I'm teaching my sons. So just imagine if I'm teaching these principles to my sons, but at the same time, I'm allowing them to view programming without proper intellectual process or asking critical questions. That is the antithesis of that, including the male who is nothing more than a buffoon. Mm -hmm. So as parents, we have to be very careful about this. Keep our children as much as possible protected from this type of nefarious programming. And where then, Lennon, do hero archetypes play into this? Because it just strikes me again as you're speaking that, uh, say, with Disney princesses, I mean, there's always a hero. The knight in shining armor, I think you mentioned. There's always a hero somewhere in any of these kind of narratives that are given to kids and to adults indeed as well by the media through Hollywood and through the music industry and that kind of thing. How important is it that we become aware of hero archetypes and what they are and what they can do to the subconscious and how they can lead us down a particular path? Yes, and I, this is wonderful. This is awesome. Thank you, John. <laughs> John, you are, this is what we used to say when I was growing up, the terminology, you are on it. <laughs> you're, you're making it interesting here. <laughs> the hero, because the, see, what you're referring to is hero worship. And see, hero worship is really the externalization of power. And see, the externalization is, is central, and, and it's the, the central theme of mind control. So even if you want to look at the, what people call the Illuminati or, or you know, global, uh, global government, if you want to look at you know, um, whatever externalized entity you want to, to, to conceptualize, it's all based upon the externalization of power and that somehow something else outside of you has more power than you to positively, positively transform the quality of your life. In other words, and not only that, they also have more power than you to have a negative impact on your life. This is all, so whether it's a super villain or a superhero, the same principle uh, applies, you're always externalizing power. So just as an example, um, a lot of the, the programming in the movies these days is the superheroes. A lot of the stuff that I used to read the comic books when I was growing up, the X-Men and the Superman and the Batman, now there, there's movies that are, are really you know global, um, Hollywood blockbuster movies that are put out, but all that is, is it's no different for young males to see that than the, the young girls to see the Disney princess. It's just set in a different dynamic. Yeah. The Disney princess tends to be a little bit more uh, reserved. It's not as aggressive. And in many cases, it's not in most cases, it's not as physically violent. It's not as aggressive, okay, because you're dealing with the feminine. Whereas with the male programming, it's more aggressive. It's more violent because supposedly you're dealing with the mask and as if that's what it means to be masked. And again, this is part of the programming too. The Notion that as a masking being, you're supposed to be a brute. You're supposed to be out here blowing up things, blowing up buildings, and, blow, and seeking out the super hit, uh, villain and, and going out and destroying and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, here's the thing. The hero worshiping stuff, especially for young males, it can cause them, especially if they're not operating from a level of proper intellectual process, it can cause them to externalize power and not to see themselves as being their own superhero. <laughs> yeah. See, here's the thing, as men, you have to be your own superhero because part of coming into manhood 
it, it, it comes to this, it, it deals with this issue of transforming yourself from being a boy who needs someone else to help him, who needs someone else to guide him, and in some cases, someone else to save him, okay, to coming into a, to becoming a man where, and you recognize you have the power to save yourself. You have, a, you have the power to solve your own problems. In many cases, you have the power to make sure that the problems don't uh, uh, come up in the first place by planning ahead, all intellectual process, all part of coming into and ascending into a man. Now, the programming in terms of the, the superhero worship, it's really designed not only to, to promote you know, death, destruction, war, gore, conflict, um, uh, aggressiveness, all this type of thing, but also to stifle, to retard the process of a boy coming into a man because he sees these superheroes out here saving the day. Here I come to save the day. That was the whole thing for Superman. And there are a lot of boys who hold on to that and they're still waiting for men, other men to come and save them, to take care of them, to make sure that they're safe. Well, how are you going to be able to operate as the best husband that you can be, as the best father that you can be, or even as the best man that you can be if you need some other man to solve your problem, some other man, some government, uh-oh, here we go, the, some, the government to come and, and solve all of your problems. <laughs> yeah. So that hero worship, this is a serious problem. Now, I will say this. My sons, we do allow them to watch, as long as it's not extremely violent, um, some of the superhero films. But we screen it in advance, and we always have intellectual conversations. And I've already talked with my sons about, look, you must be your own superhero. You must come into manhood. Now, if you want to watch this film, that's fine. But don't think that somehow by watching this film that you're going to that someone else is going to come out of the sky and save you. Because there's a lot of people that even religious people think that someone's going to come out of the sky to save them. That's no different than the programming that we receive in terms of the, the movies and the television shows and so forth and so on. Now, the difference is that I've already prepared my sons intellectually so that they can still find whatever enjoyment that they may find while watching these films. But they do not internalize this program yeah. that somehow there's a superhero that is going to come and save the day. I will also say this. And this is a beautiful thing that my youngest son, he's four now. When he was three, he came up to walk up to me, said, Daddy, you're my superhero. And that's how it should be. Yeah, yeah. You see, it, but I have to live as a dedicated father. And see, a lot of us boys, let me just use it. And this will be the last point. A lot of us boys, what happened was because our fathers weren't in our lives as positive forces that we can look up to mm. as heroes, when media gives us these archetypes, these heroes, these archetypes, we embrace those archetypes, not realizing that those archetypes, when you really look at it, they were destructive. Wolverine, very destructive person. <laughs> Batman, he's a, he's a very destructive, that's why they call him the Dark Knight, because he has a lot of psychological issues, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But yeah. we accepted these archetypes as being representative of what it means to be a man, and then we aspire to become those things. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that a lot of us, we didn't have proper archetypes for what it means to be a man. And you know who should be the first person that brings us that proper ar archetype should be our fathers. Unfortunately, a lot of us, we missed out on that. And so what media does is it plays upon that dynamic and gives us these archetypes, but then also programs us to believe that even when we come into adulthood as men, that we always need something or someone else to solve our problems. We need something else to solve our problems. Government. We need Barack Obama. A lot of people, Barack Obama is their superhero. It, this is all the externalization of power. And this has to stop when we talk about uplifting the species and moving beyond the paradigm of the control network that is that is global. It comes back to us reclaiming our power, coming into our power and stop and ultimately stopping th this continued, this negative relationship that we have to all these external forces wherein we are always externalizing power unto them. 
So are you saying then essentially that it matters not whether it's Batman or Barack Obama or Princess Bella or Kim Kardashian, it's all essentially the same thing? <laughs> yes, here we go. <laughs> Kim Kardashian. Absolutely, it's all the same. Uh, you can say Satan. Uh, you can say Lucifer. You can say reptilian shapeshifters. It's all the externalization of power. See, as a man, uh, part of my progression was getting to a point where I stopped you know, feeling as if the Illuminati had so much control over my life. And ultimately, I recognize at this point in my life, it has no control over my life. Yeah. You see, what, what has control over my life is me. And see, that's the influence. That's the leadership aspect of being a man where you have to step into your power as a man. And then you build something that is beautiful, that is powerful, that reaches beyond the power structure itself. And that's precisely what I'm doing with my family. But I can't do that if I'm holding up these suits. Let me give you another example that came to mind. This is awesome. <laughs> so <laughs> when I was growing up, my father was a very abusive uh, person. He was also an alcoholic and a drug addict. Uh, and then when he, he started, once he got onto crack, he did other drugs too for a long time, but once he got onto crack, things really got bad. Um, it, I mean, it was really, really, I had a very traumatizing experience. He was abusive to my mother uh, verbally and physically to the extreme, but also abusive to us as children. So I, I never saw a positive role model for, for what it meant to be a man or, or for what it meant to be a father more specifically. So it was difficult for me to conceptualize in my mind. And one of the things that I do remember that my father, would, when we did take time, we would either go fishing usually because we didn't have money we had to go fishing to catch fish so that we could eat that day okay that's just how things were back then a part of it was he was an alcoholic he was a drug addict so a lot of the money that he should have been using to support his family as a dedicated husband and father he was using for drugs he was using for alcohol so we would have to compensate for that by going fishing to try to catch fish to bring home to eat but the other thing that we used to do that i found value in and i found value in the fishing because it was calm we're sitting at the water and my father you know he's drinking alcohol and you know smoking weed during that same time and doing other drugs it's, at least we were out doing something with him um and i got to sit by the water and it was peaceful that kind of thing but the other thing that we did was we used to watch uh at the time it was called wwf worldwide uh wrestling federation okay now it's called wwe mm. and the most popular character and it's really a character or wrestler was hulk hogan yeah and I, I mean, we loved Hulk Hogan. My father idolized Hulk Hogan. And he used to, you know, sometimes talk like Hulk Hogan. Again, this was his archetype. Okay? Yeah. We're going back decades <laughs> and decades. And I saw Hulk Hogan as the pinnacle of manhood. But really, what did Hulk Hogan do? He got up there and, and basically in draws, okay, underwear. And he would get up there and he would tear his shirt off and he would per, uh, 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 proceed to pounce on and, and beat up another guy. It's all fake, but we believe it to be real. And then he would win the match and he's still the champion. And it goes on and on and on and on and on, okay? but it's all about conflict again it's all about war and he's a savior figure for a lot of people he's the superhero and he became a superhero for, for me as a child the difference is that as i grew as i grew older i recognized at first wwf quote unquote wwe was all staged, okay? Again, there's no difference than what we saw with mass media. Remember when we talked in the beginning, yeah. a lot of people believe that everything that they see inside the mainstream news is true. No critical thought. Well, that's no different than a lot of things that we see, the Disney Princess programming or the WWF wrestlers, WWE. I thought it was true, but then I came into a level of intellectual process. I realized, wait a minute, this none of this was true. This They were just acting out these roles, but this is someone who's acting out this role, and then I'm, I'm looking at this person as a hero, and because he becomes my hero and archetype for manhood, basically what I'm doing is I'm accepting a hero and archetype for manhood that's based upon an illusion mm. yeah and so then and then more recently just a, a couple of weeks ago this thing comes out with hulk hogan where he's you know said that you know there's this uh 
transcript of him, you know, using the N word in, 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 in a very disrespectful way towards African American or Black people. Yeah. And, and for a moment, just for a moment, John, <laughs> I was hurt by it. Not because he used the N word, because I don't, I'm not concerned about that. That's all emotionalism. Yeah. But because when I was a child, I believed in him. Yeah. Yeah. That's what hurt for a moment, but then I caught myself. I said, why am I feeling that way in that moment, intellectual process? I said, oh, wait a minute, because I received the programming when I was a child. You see, so part of what I'm saying is that we're all still working through the programming. We're all still working through the programming. But when it comes to the archetypes that we receive, we have to be critical. And part of a parent's job, my father didn't do a very good job at this. Part of a parent job, parent's job is to make sure that they have comedy. If you want to watch WWF, WWE, that's fine. If you want to watch the Disney princess movies, okay. You're going to have your children watching that, okay. Just make sure that you have the intellectual conversation with them so that they don't accept the programming as being an archetype for what they should become as men or what they should become as women, mm. respectively. Very important lesson there. That is an important <laughs> lesson because I think if we have cognizance of what's going on, it's much more difficult to be affected by something that is going on. So that makes a lot of sense to me and I think it will resonate with a lot of people out there. Um, most people have a kind of a blind loyalty to family no matter what the circumstances so for example let's say let's say somebody goes off to war a soldier goes off to war and I know a lot of people don't like if anybody speaks ill of soldiers because they're doing good for the country or whatever (laughs) more programming in my opinion but anyway uh, daddy goes off to war and commits some atrocities as a soldier in his capacity as a soldier doing his job in inverted commas or whatever comes back and is still the hero to the kids. And then it emerges a couple of years later that daddy did what daddy did. And I think it would be so difficult. I try and put myself in that position. And if it was my dad, I would find it extremely difficult to disassociate my good feelings versus what I know the right and the wrong thing is to do. So if my dad had acted consistently in an extremely negative manner towards other people or in a severely negative manner towards other people, to me, it would be very hard for me to accept that fact and to say, do you know what? He's not the hero that I had built him up to be, even though I'm presented with the facts there. And I think it's at that point then that cognitive dissonance comes into play as it does in so much of what we speak about on this show and the world at large indeed, because I think there is um, an extreme level of cognitive dissonance within the global mindset and with society at large. And I think when cognitive dissonance comes into play, that's when some of these other archetypes slip in under the radar. So I think cognizance and actual critical analysis of what is going on in our lives and around us is the most important thing with regard to how we treat other people and how we treat ourselves, because we can't treat ourselves like crap, because we're automatically, I think, going to treat other people around us like crap then as well. That's what resonated most for me as you were speaking there. It's, it's kind of like the, the love yourself and then you can love your family and you can love your neighbor type attitude that is most important above anything else. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And a lot of us, we weren't taught how to love ourselves properly in the first place. Um, really, we have to be taught how to love. And mm. that should come from our parents in the first place. Parents should teach their, teach their children how to love by loving them. But in the absence of that, we do not, we're not, we don't develop that skill set. So it becomes very difficult to love ourselves, let alone love uh, other people. Um, that cognitive uh, dissonance is so important too, because uh, there are a lot of people that they know. It's it's, it's like you were saying, um, use an example, the hypothetical. Well, I can use an example that is actually coming from my own uh, real life experience with my own father. 
um, recognizing who he is and who he was, and there's really not much difference between who he was and who he is today because he still is the same basic human being that he was then. Mm. Um, I can say that he wasn't a good father, and I can say that he wasn't a good man because that's the truth. See, the co- and I don't have the cognitive dissonance to where in I would say, you know, but he's still my father, he's still my hero somehow, uh, and regardless of how he abused my mother or how he abused us or how he's not in any of our lives these days, any of his children's lives in a positive way these days, um, I still have to accept him as my hero. I don't have that cognitive dis- dissonance. And here's the thing, when it comes to um, uh, coming into a level of true consciousness, you have to be honest and you have to be courageous enough to speak the truth. And a lot of what ha- a lot of times what happens is and some of you listening here, you know what the truth is. You, you know what the truth is, but the cognitive dissonance doesn't allow you to speak the truth. It's almost like you, you, you self-impose this restriction. So you and see, it's for as an example, there are some men who they won't speak the truth that men and women aren't the same. It doesn't mean that men are better or women are better or that men are uh, worse or that women are worse. No, I'm just saying they're complementary. But a man will, there are some men who will self impose this restriction uh, uh, that they can't even say that men and women are uh, are not equal because of the cognitive dissonance, mm. right? And because they know that there are other people who will hear them say that and then they're gonna, those other people are going to have a problem. It doesn't matter whether or not other people are going to have a problem. What matters is that you speak truth. And a lot of times that cognitive dissonance, we know what is true, but we won't say it. We know what is right, but we won't do it. A lot of times it comes back to programming. And sometimes, again, when it comes, especially as children, when it comes to our parents, we have a very difficult time admitting the truth, especially if we know that they didn't do the best that they could have or that they harmed us or that they abused us. And in some cases, psychologically speaking, this is an interesting uh, issue too, is that parents will literally rewrite the script in terms of what their contribution was to their children. They will rewrite the script in their mind. So when you bring something up, Mama, I remember you did this to me, or Daddy, I remember you did this. I don't remember doing that. I didn't do that to you. No, they did it, but the cognitive dissonance doesn't allow them to, to admit the truth. Yeah. So part of what I'm saying is as a species, when we talk about coming to a level of proper intellectual process, is we have to get to the point where we admit the truth no matter what, and we do not allow whether or not someone is going to like what we have to say when we know that it's true, or whether or not we're going to hurt someone's feelings. It's not about feelings, it's about proper intellectual process. You got to speak the truth, whether that is for parents or whether that is for people in general that you're experiencing in the world, that you're dealing with in the world on a general basis, you always must speak the truth. How they react to it, that's not your concern. You always speak the truth. Yeah, I think the truth is power. And once we're not afraid of our own power, that's when we become brave enough to speak our own truth. And everyone has their own truth. But the truth is always the truth, no matter what anybody else says to you. That's right. That's right. We've kind of described over the last hour then, Lennon, almost like not not a dumbing down, but a dilution of what makes us all unique and different and complementary. It's almost like, an how would I say it, an androgynous soup in a sense. And... Those that are stirring this soup or this pot full of androgynous soup must have some kind of an agenda or something is at play here. They're not doing it for no reason. And we, we do know and we have established that a lot of it is for power and control. But power and control to do what? The more I look at this, I can't help thinking that transhumanism comes into this somewhere. It's, it's almost like they're trying to reset humanity so that they can recraft it or rescript it or mold it again to the way they see it should be now is this complete conspiracy theory is this complete nonsense or how do you feel about it i'm very interested because i know you have spoken in the past about transhumanism 
Yes, um, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's a theoretical conspiracy, but there's evidence to support this theoretical conspiracy. See, okay. oftentimes when people say conspiracy theory, look, it, there has to be evidence proof. Okay, so you can propose any given theory, but that mm. doesn't mean that it's the truth. So if there's evidence and proof, then now you can at least consider it to be true. And then what you do is you you get the evidence and proof. You get the evidence enough evidence to where you can prove the theory, and then the theory becomes true. Okay? Well, I'm glad you so, said that because that's another bastardized term, conspiracy yes, theory. And I was yes, kind of kind of hope, hoping you would say that because most people. People's initial reaction, certainly from the mainstream, is conspiracy theory, oh, well, nonsense. And you've just described exactly why it's not nonsense. So thank you for that. I'll allow you to yes. proceed. <laughs> yes, but I will say that there are there are a, there's significant portion of the conspiracy theories. And really, I'm going to say theoretical conspiracies that are, are stated that where there is no evidence to prove. And we have to be have critical thinking about that, though, too. Of course. But, what I, but, but we also have to be clear with that there are agendas and those agendas are part of uh, what, what we can say a a um, conspiracy and therefore we can propose a theory of that conspiracy but we have to have the evidence and then ultimately the evidence will prove the theory to be true okay yeah. this is all intellectual process one way or the other if you got the evidence to prove it then great okay but you got to have the evidence in, in, to, to prove any given claim um yes there is an agenda and part of this is to turn make men and women the same <laughs> okay we already talked about this in other words yeah when there is no man and there is no woman um there's a singularity if you will um this gets into transhumanism too um this also gets into the notion of um gender neutrality okay so um there's a whole big thing here in the united states i don't know if it's there where you're at i hope it's not but it may be um there's this athlete i can't remember his name right now and he's oh, gone through this pro- jenner What's that? um it's yeah. one of that kardashian crew yeah i know yeah, you're yeah. speaking bruce, bruce jenner bruce jenner. yeah bruce jenner yeah. okay so he goes to this pro- and it's all about him turning himself into a woman it doesn't make you a woman you can do whatever you want you're still not a woman okay uh being a woman is a very specific thing okay yeah. and you have to have specific parts and there's there the science is not there to give you those specific parts you still do not have a womb you still do not have the internal chemistry um or, or even the, the the psychological makeup of a woman no matter what you do as a man and vice versa uh, women who are trying to be men the point that i'm making is because anyone if that's what you want to do that's fine it's your life you can do whatever you want to what we have to be careful about is that when that becomes entertainment for programming purposes which is part of the agenda okay this contributes to the agenda and all of this gender stuff it's programming now part of what's taking place is to issue the programming to take people out of their nature Okay, so here's mm. the key thing, because this is really what this is all leading up to. Transhumanism is about taking, is transhuming, uh, uh, transcending your humanness, which is your nature. <laughs> okay, your nature is to be a human being. And then within the nature of the human being, you have complementary parts. Okay, not in opposition, not in conflict, not in at war, not at war. The complementary part, there's a feminine component, there's a masculine component, and then to various degrees, in and round, and they're in the middle, and so forth and so on. But the point being is that you have a nature. A lot of the programming that we're getting, the transhumanism programming, the um, uh, transgender programming that we're getting is designed to take people out of their nature. So if you are a feminine female, somehow you, you need to start moving in the direction of becoming more masculine and more like a man. Somehow, if you are a masculine man, somehow you have to start moving towards the other direction, towards becoming more like a feminine a woman. And then not only in terms of how you see the world, not only in terms of your psychological makeup, but now it's gotten to the extreme to where now physically how you look, even if that means that you have to cut off body parts, you have to get implants, you do whatever you have to do in order to transcend your humanness, to transcend your nature. And I'm going to tell you all something that time has already told the truth on this particular issue. And I, and I have this saying, time always tells the truth. Time has always told, has already told this truth time and time and time again. 
And that is that whenever you go against nature, you are going to have problems. Mm. It doesn't matter what it is that you're doing. If you're going against nature, see, nature is about balance. It doesn't mean that everything is all uh, beautiful all the time because sometimes that storm comes in, nature brings in that storm and it ravages, but then you get all that rain and ultimately that rain, okay, now you got plants growing now. Okay, that's a beautiful thing. It all works out. It's all in balance. You have this ebb and flow, the masculine and feminine. You have this ebb and flow over and over and over again, and it's nature. So it doesn't mean that everything has to be perfect all the time, but what it means is that everything compliments there's a there's an action there's a reaction no matter what so what i'm saying is that when we, whenever we seek to go beyond our nature we create problems as human beings that's one of the great challenges that we face as human beings psychologically speaking is that the more we go against nature the more problems we create you'll find that animals do not go against nature and that's why they don't have nearly the amount of problems that human beings have. And they don't cause the amount of chaos in the world that human beings uh, cause. And see, a lot of the programming that we're referring to here, transhumanism in particular, is designed to cause people to go beyond their nature. Now, let me say this, that if you can cause, a, you can you can transform a person's behavior, you can also transform how they see themselves, but then they begin to cut body parts off or get implants and all that, that's some serious mind control. But they can go through this process. If you can modify their behavior in that de- to that degree, doesn't that mean that you have a level of control over them? Absolutely. So, so that's what I'm saying. That when we talk about agendas, that programming is not out there for no reason. That programming is out there not just to modify behavior and modify people's psychological makeup through uh, um, you know, uh, social engineering, but it also maintains a power structure. Because ultimately you have someone, there is, there is someone or it's a group of people who is issuing this programming purposefully and it's to their benefit. They're not going to issue, and sometimes it's a financial benefit, but in some cases it's a power benefit. In other, in other words, it maintains the power structure as is. So this is what I'm saying, there, the agenda, that is part, and it's all clear. I mean, there's evidence of this. It, there, it's clear that there is an agenda and that agenda by nature is conspiratorial. And therefore we can propose a conspiracy theory and there is evidence to prove this theory to be true. I think you're absolutely right. And having identified some of the problems then, how do we transcend our programming? Because that's ultimately what what we have to do to return to truth. Yes, yes. And see, this has been part of my um, process. Um, there were years ago when I was doing LennonHonorFilms.com, and if you all want to get into all of my, uh, I was doing extreme, uh, <laughs> when I say extreme, I mean, I did so many uh, documentaries on media manipulation, mind control, subliminal messages, the entertainment industry, uh, transhumanism. I have a, a, a documentary that's like over, uh, what is it, seven hours long, uh, titled uh, The Borg Agenda 7 of 9 and Sexualization of Technology. Mm-hmm. I also have a documentary dealing with um, Disney, um, the early works of Walt Disney, the foundations of a pedophilic institution. Um, I, I mean, I, uh, the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, media mind control in the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. So over the years, I have invested a lot of research, time and study, and then also production towards identifying a lot of the manipulation that's out there and how it works, the power structure, how it works. Um, the the externalization of power and how we're led constantly to externalize our power and how that does a disservice to us as men and women, especially within the context of family institution and raising children, because we're always, ultimately we hand our children over to someone else who we perceive to have more power than we have. And then therefore that, that 
whoever that person is, that hero, okay, their influence over our child is greater than ours. So the amount of time our children comes of age, our children become 13 or 14, we're sitting back and we're, I don't know this child. Who is the child? Yeah, you don't know the child because you didn't actually raise the child. Mm. A lot of us, can we can relate to this. That's why our parents at a certain point, they were like, I don't know who you are and you have all these problems with it. But that's because you didn't, the, the parent didn't actually raise the children. This is all about the externalization of power. So part of what I'm saying is that that early work, it was about identifying the system that is in place that causes the externalization of power and manipulates our, our psyche. What I do these days is what I do and I seek to do these days because I've gone through this process of myself is to assist people in beginning to internalize their power and then begin to create something that reaches beyond the paradigm of control. See, it's one thing to identify the paradigm of control. And I mean, there's plenty of people who have done that. I've already said some names, uh, David Icke, Jordan Maxwell, um, uh, What's Mike, the brother's name? Mike, what on earth Michael Tessarian and Mark Michael Passio. Michael Tessarian. And who uh, was the other one you just Mar said? Mark Passio as well. Mark Passio, brother, my brother, good brother Mark Passio. I mean, you can just take some time dealing with their work. I mean, you can deal with their work for like, I don't know, just take three or four months and you will get a very clear perspective, okay, on the, on the control network. And that's necessary. We need to identify those things. But then ultimately, we have to take it to the next level, take it a step further, and that is when we begin to develop solutions. And I'm going to tell people very simply, and some people may say that it's an oversimplification, but I have evidence and proof to this theory, <laughs> okay? When you are able to work on yourself as a man to where you live an ethically just life, when you work on yourself as a woman and you begin to live an ethically just life, and that really means something. People have to think about what does that mean? That means you do not harm other people. You do not harm animals. You, know, you do not cheat. You do not steal. You do not lie. Okay? You, you, you speak truth. You love. You learn to love. And then you begin to love. When you do this, you set yourself up nicely for a positive relationship. <laughs> yeah. But there's a lot of work in terms of preparing for that positive relationship. So that's what I'm saying in the first place, even if you're not in a relationship now, you should be refining yourself day by day as a man or as a woman, working on the thoughts that you keep, the words that you speak, and the actions that you take day by day that reaches beyond the programming, okay? So in other words, if you have all these negative thoughts, you're worried about the Illuminati, you're worried about reptilian shapeshifters, you're worried about global bankers, and, and on and on and on and on, non-martial law, it's going to have an adverse effect on you because you're always externalizing power. That's a psychological issue. So it's one thing to identify those things, yes, but now what's the next step? Well, now you have to internalize power to when you begin to take control of your own destiny. Mm -hmm. And you do, and not only your own destiny, but for future generations, and that's why positive relationships, that's key. Because through the positive relationship that you establish, if things go as they naturally do, you're, you're now building a family institution. And even if you don't have children, you're still building something with your partner. And it, there should be, it should be all be about a truth, speaking truth, living truth, living an ethically, uh, um, uh, an ethically and even a morally just lifestyle. And now you have two people doing this. And then now under most, under most natural situations, children are being born and raised into this dynamic now, where you have truth seekers who have sought truth, who are now speaking truth, who have learned how to love, who have refined themselves as men and women, and who are now building a family institution, and now children are born into this dynamic? I'm telling you all something from personal experience. My children are greater than the Illuminati. Mm -hmm. They're greater than the, than the power structure. They're not even being raised in that power structure. 
And therefore, they have a level of sovereignty of mind, if you will. And that sovereignty of mind, because ultimately it's a psychological issue, the externalization of power, they do not externalize power and they will not externalize power, not even unto me. You will not be externalizing power unto me, my son, because you must become your own superhero. Daughter, I'm there for you. I will be there until the end. But understand that as a grown woman, you're going to have to internalize your power. So part of what I'm saying is that there is this process. In the first place, you got to refine yourself. And you got to build yourself up. And, you, and if you have any addictions, work, on, work out those addictions. If you have health issues, get healthier. See, this is all about you. If you have these negative thoughts about women, work on that. Refine. You have these sexist ideas about women. Work on this. Women, if you have these negative thoughts about men, if you say things like there's no good men out there, that will become your reality. Well, you're going to have to begin to change your psychology, your mentality about that, your attitude, if you will. you got to work on yourself. Refine your thoughts. Refine your words. What you say day by day. is You know, when you talk to people, there's about bashing them? It's about disrespecting them? Is it about brutalizing them? Is it about harming them? Or are you speaking in a language of love? These are things that you can do that will transform the nature of the reality that we're experiencing right here, right now, that reaches beyond the power structure, that reaches beyond the control network. And then, of course, the actions that you take day by day. Every single day, you should have it. You should be very clear about what you're doing every single day. Is this contributing to my life in a positive way, the lives of others in a positive way? Is it reaching beyond all of the programming that I received that was detrimental? to me? Is it reaching beyond all of the programming that I received in the public education system or in the television show or in the movies, the Disney princess or, or the male buffoon programming, the sexist idea, whatever the case may be, my behavior, things that I'm doing day by day, is it reaching beyond all of the programming? So those three things, your thoughts, your words, and your actions, and if you do that day by day, and really what happens is if you got parents who are doing that day by day, now you have a whole new generation being raised in that type of an experience, and then hopefully, my, our goal, that our grandchildren will be raised in a similar type, type of situation, hopefully even better, and then now we're setting other species back on course to reclaiming more and more power. And therefore, you get enough of us reclaiming more and more power, the power structure itself crumbles because the power structure only exists because we externalize power unto it. Inspiring words, I must say. Extremely constructive advice, and I think there's something in there, not just for some people but for absolutely everyone and I think everything in there is for absolutely everyone so if anybody would like to delve further into the work that you've done Lennon how can they do so yeah so if you want to get into the um, more of the media mind control subliminal messages um, the entertainment industry symbolism uh, that type of, of orientation this was like the work that I did years ago you can head on over to LennonHonorFilms.com uh, my name is Lennon Honor L-E-N-O-N-H-O-N-O-R F-I-L-M-S and then my new website, Lennon, well, it's not new, but my more recent website is LennonHonor.com. I have more content that is more dealing with family, uh, male-female relationships, personal growth, personal improvement, empowerment, that kind of internalization of power. I should also mention I have a YouTube page and I upload there from time to time. And I have a lot of documentaries, uh, movies there, uh, videos there dealing with media manipulation and mind control, but also male-female relationships. My wife and I, we have a, a series that we call uh, Positive Relationships. And we just talk about relationships and, and manhood and womanhood, and especially within the context of, of a family and in the context of a relationship. That, that show has really helped a lot of people to begin to reconstruct their orientation towards uh, male-female relationships. And then I also just want to mention, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter under Linden Honor. But I want to mention that I am working on a new documentary, um, NWA, a critical analysis. And let me just real quickly give me one, give me thirty seconds. Yeah. Um, there, there is a film coming out in about three weeks, titled uh, "Straight Out of Compton," which is basically designed to um, glorify a particular rap group. It was a gangster rap group 
um, from my childhood. Mm, and I'm this very uh, familiar with them. Yeah. Yeah. NWA. OK. Yeah. And, and I, if I can say it here, you can bleep it out if you need oh, to. Oh, you can NWA. say what you want on this show. Oh, oh I wish I'd known that because I would have known. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, NWA stands for Niggas with Attitudes. And I grew up listening to that music and the lyrical content. And it was very disrespect, uh, disrespectful of women, extremely disrespectful, very violent, heinous. The, when we talk about childhood programming, um, that particular programming that was present in that particular uh, rap uh, group's lyrical content was extremely destructive, extremely destructive. And so now here we are 25 years later and the movie is being produced and will be premiering in about three, three uh, weeks um, to venerate this group. But but it's even deeper than that because what's happening is and di- happening is and Disney actually does this too where they re-release these old films every you know, I, don't, I don't think it's what twenty five years they have this new release of these films. What's happening is the the, the movies is, be, is being uh, represented so that the next generation will take interest or at least some of the next generation of of people they will take interest in, and they will go and listen and then now the next generation is receiving that same program. Well. <clears throat> What I decided to do was to put together a documentary, a critical analysis of that particular group, NWA. And in that, in my documentary, I will outline the programming for what it is through analysis, because what I've done is I've looked at the keywords that are used track by track, album by album, four albums all together. Each track, I looked at which word, what the terminology that was being used, the words that were being used, and then doing word counts. And based upon the the frequency at which certain words were being used, you can begin to extrapolate what the general themes are. Yeah. And I did this track by track by track by track, album by album, four albums all together. And then I will be taking a critical look at the lyrical content within the documentary and to, to show people how deep the programming goes. And again, and this program was being issued for young people who are operating based upon the subconscious mind. So all it was being embedded within their subconscious mind. A lot of the programming was disrespect of women. So you can imagine young, impressionable boys receiving this programming to disrespect women. How does that begin to impact them through behavior modification in terms of how they treat young girls? And a lot of the young girls received this programming that was very disrespectful to young girls, very disrespectful towards women. Well, how how does that impact the self-esteem, the self-worth and the self-value of the uh, young girl? So, again, this this documentary, NWA, a critical analysis, I'm working on it now and I hope to have it completed in about two months. So people, you can look forward to that as well. I'm doing updates on my YouTube page, Linen Honor Films. So make sure that you head on over to my uh, YouTube page and subscribe because I will be doing updates as I progress through this particular documentary. Fantastic. Personally speaking, I'll be really looking forward to that. Um, my day job, if you like, is within the music industry and I'm quite au fait with what goes on there. So uh, I, I have to say that's going to be fascinating. Oh, yes. I'm very excited about it. Very much needed, too. Very much needed. I think so. Well, I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. Lennon Honor, it's been absolutely superb speaking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an honor for me, no pun intended. And I really hope we can do this again sometime. Thank you so much for joining me on Alchemy. Oh, my pleasure, John. Much respect to you. Keep up the good work. And I want to send you lots of love, peace and positivity from the Honor family. Right back at you. Okay, peace, man. Alchemy.
I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy. Unfortunately, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format. It'd be great if we didn't rely on the money system, but that is currently the case. So we're extremely grateful for any help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on your donations, and every little helps. So if you could spare even the price of a paperback book every month, it would go a long way towards keeping us afloat. Our donate button is on the website, and thank you, of course, to everybody who has donated to date. Until the next time, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy. Alchemy. Care. Will. Intelligence. Imagination. Alchemy.